All right, Psalm 110, it's there for you in your worship folder. Um, as, as one who stands in, in front of a, a group like you and preaches on Sunday mornings, and if you are uh, aware of what a challenge this is, um, I want to set this up for you. Um, we in the church use a lot of words, a lot of ideas. We've already sung about a lot of ideas already in our worship service, and today in Psalm 110, we're going to come. We're going to talk about two main ideas: Christ is our King, and Christ is our Priest. And um, what I think happens in, is that those are words that sort of blend into the white noise of our lives. We have a lot of things gr- grappling for our attention. Uh, I don't know how many of you already checked email this morning. Um, how many of us have arrived today with just a number of messages in our minds? Uh, it's hard for us to, to focus. We have many, many things uh, that are coming at us. Um, just imagine you're on a road trip, and uh, you see all those billboards on the mainland. Uh, just take your, your favorite little drive on or, or long drive on the on the mainland. Here on Oahu, our, our road trips are about nine minutes long. Uh, but uh, like on the mainland, I go visiting uh, Covenant College in Georgia from uh, Atlantic, Atlanta Airport to, uh, to Chattanooga um, up I-85 and then transition to I-75. And how you know you're making progress is by, well, one way you can do this is by counting the um, uh, Cracker Barrel uh, Oh, that's the ninth Cracker Barrel. I must be 50 miles from Chattanooga. Um, and uh, you could, uh, my point here is that uh, you can actually take these billboard signs and they can actually become a, a, a bigger picture of how we are hearing so many messages. And the name of Jesus just sort of blends in there uh, a bit. Sometimes you'll actually have a church advertising on a billboard. But it goes like this. McDonald's, Nike. Roto-Rooter, Outlet Mall, Starbucks, Nissan, Chevron, Jesus, Jose's Mexican, Honda, (laughs) Cracker Barrel, Bud Light, Jesus. This This is sort of how it works in our lives. There's categories and concepts, ideas from Sunday morning. And it's hard to come to that come to that place where it's where one of those names stands out. One of those names is vitally important. Today, we are experiencing kind of the spamification, the spamification of religious words. Spam is a term that they think, at least a digital term, that, uh, that they think came out of a computer group at USC in Southern California. And they began to notice years ago all of this unsolicited email, a constant barrage, and it was nicknamed Spam. Uh, spam was this ubiquitous product uh, that uh, they had a lot of in England and, and in Hawaii during World War II. Spam, everywhere. Spam is, uh, represents, I think, some parts are meat. Is that what it, is that what it stands for? <laughs> but, but they came up with a conclusion about what spam really is, or at least spam in the email world. Spam is nobody wants it or ever asks for it. No one ever eats it, and the first item is, that, that's the first item that's pushed to the side when eating the entree. But sometimes it's actually tasty. 
like 1% of the junk mail that is really useful to some people. And uh, I want you to hear again verse 1 of Psalm 110. A psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The most quoted psalm in the New Testament This psalm has significance for the shaping of our understanding of Jesus Christ. This psalm is to rattle our cage because our view and understanding of Jesus is often at the level of those billboard signs. He may be useful. He may be helpful. But I've also got other places to go with my life and other things that are Relatively similar in importance. But today I just want to cover two ideas, breaking from the pattern of three points. Uh, There's a king who draws us in, and there's a priest who draws us near. It's really extraordinary. A thousand years B.C., David pens these words. In fact, he's reflecting on a passage from Genesis 14, where the name Melchizedek first comes up. And he is now reflecting on this whole idea that there's going to be a greater king coming, a Lord who is coming. There's two oracles here in Psalm 110, verse 1 and verse 4. One oracle is about this coming king, David's greater Lord. And then the second oracle is about a priest, a very unique priest who shows up in Genesis 14. And David is going to tell us more about him. The first thing I want you to know is that in Psalm 110, we are really made to be insiders, insiders. We're hearing a conversation between Yahweh and David's Lord. There's a, it's a, more of like a statement, but it's a statement from Yahweh to David's Lord, and it is, sit at my right hand, and I will make your enemies your your a footstool to your feet. That's how the ancient kings would, would uh, prop up their feet. They would have, well, a footstool. And here's the, the picture is, you're going to rule over your enemies like you put your foot on a footstool. And so this image of a king, we are given, but we're given knowledge of how this king is thought of by God himself. We are inside the courtroom, the chambers, we're, we're back where the, the decisions are being made. You ever feel frustrated by maybe just hearing political things from the newspaper or your favorite uh, television news show, but you're really not quite sure you're quite getting the inside information. We've become real insiders We now know when we look at the death of Jesus, we know that that's part of the process. We look at his life and death, and we know that he is now becoming this reigning king who is David's Lord. He rises from the dead, and he ascends in Acts chapter 1, and his coronation day is his ascension, and he begins to rule, and we learn that his rule is evidenced by the giving of the Spirit And the Spirit now pours out upon the church as if Jesus was a conquering king and he he pours forth the victories, the victors, the, the spoils of war upon his church. And now the church has been gifted by the Spirit. And that is evidence that Jesus is now king. 
we are insiders into what is going on between God, the Father, and the Son, and how the Son has come to reign. We're insiders. So secondly, we've become part of his rule, verse 2. It's really interesting. Look at how this develops. Verse 2. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. We become part of his rule. His rule is now extended. Uh, His rule is growing. His rule is incorporating his enemies. And, of course, we pause and say, Wow, that includes us. And the book of Romans, chapter 5, describes us in uh, direct terms and calls us enemies. Romans five ten. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled by the death of his son, how much more shall we be reconciled by his life? So he's extending his rule. He's extending his rule. And from Zion, Zion is a term that represents the the place where worship took place in Jerusalem. It would eventually become the place where the temple would be. And it was a, a slight hill, and they would make pilgrimages to Zion. Zion would become the epicenter for God's rule and reign. Not only would there be a... a God's priests reigning over his people, but here there's a king who's ruling over his people and his reign is expanding. What book in the New Testament can we look to to see this King Jesus is expanding his rule? Well, the book of Acts. The book of Acts is the great, it's a short history book uh, covering about 25 years or so, and you see the expansion of Jesus' kingdom his reigning over his enemies. And what does he do with his enemies? He first converts them. He brings them the grace of conversion, and that's how he shows his power. And of course, in Psalm 110, we're introduced to this, this God who has a king over his people, and kings have a way of conducting themselves where they're not waiting for people to vote them into power. Kings have rights, and they have absolute rights or absolute claims over their people. And, of course, as we see who Jesus is, we can trust him. Uh, When he makes claim over our lives, we can say, yes, I trust you. Yours is a good kingship. And much of the Christian life, really, is growing to become used to this lordship, to this kingship. Uh, repentance really characterizes our understanding that he has a right to this area of our life. Repentance is growing in a, a right understanding of Christ's kingship. We don't get it down in just one weekend or in just one sermon. Uh, we don't get it down in just one good book of theology we are continuing to grow in what it means to be brought under his kingship. And, of course, he has done the ultimate work upon us in that he has uh, converted us with great power. He brought us out of darkness into light. He showed his mercy upon us, and he quickened us. 
Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he brought us to life and he made us alive. The language of Ephesians 2.5. This is his sovereign work among us where he, he brings his kingship to bear, overcoming all human resistance. And, uh, and what a great, great job he has done to bring us into his kingdom. So, the next idea is that we become willing to serve. Look at verse 3. Your people, so so beautifully written here, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. It's kind of this picture of this assembling um, army who, who are willingly giving themselves to this king and they're very, they're youthful. They're kind of renewed like the morning dew. Uh, they're, they're a youthful army, and they are giving themselves willingly to, uh, to his service. No longer is Jesus uh, just blending into all the, the things that would attract our attention. He's not just part of this white noise of our life. He has done something remarkable. He has conquered us. He has regenerated us. He's brought us into um, a a purposeful gathering of his people, and we are willingly serving his his purposes. Beautiful, beautiful picture of his kingship. And then secondly, uh, we have a priest who is drawing us near. Look at verse 4, the second oracle uh, that David is uh, giving us by divine inspiration, and it just kind of comes out of nowhere. All suddenly we're talking about a priest from Genesis 14, and here's how it goes. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, and now we're talking to David's Lord, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, period, quote, out of, out of the blue. And now suddenly we are... Uh, told that this character from Genesis is vitally, vitally important to whatever this king now is going to do. He's going to become the key priest as well. So uh, this brings us back to when Melchizedek is first mentioned in the Bible, which is Genesis 14, and it's the story of Abram. We know him as Abraham. Abram and his nephew Lot, and they have... The story goes, they have too much livestock, they're living in the same region, just very crowded between Abram and Lot and all their livestock and their families, and it's just too crowded. So Abram turns to Lot and says, look, why don't you choose where, you, uh, where you'd like to live? And Lot chooses this beautiful fertile valley near uh, the city of Sodom, and that, of course, is going to lead to all kinds of problems in Lot's life. One key problem is Lot becomes, uh, he is captured in a skirmish among a a bunch of kings. And for whatever reason, at this time, there's all kinds of kings in these valleys. And uh, there is a conflict coming, uh, recorded in Genesis 14, where four kings are being sought after by five other smaller kings. And in the middle of this, Lot is captured, and then that mobilizes Abram, who happens to be a pretty wealthy guy because he happens to have, just on the side, 318 fighting men. 
So he mobilizes, that was kind of like the size of an army back then, um, he mobilizes his 300 men and goes and chases down, um, gets involved in the battle, and he does a night uh, skirmish, a night attack, and uh, Kedor Leomor, Kedor Leomor, excuse me, uh, he is the king who uh, is um, defeated by Abram, and um, then there are the spoils of war, and uh, Abram uh, looks really, really good. Uh, he's 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 a he's a successful milita- has a successful military campaign and rescues his his nephew Lot. Then the uh, king of Sodom shows up and says, "Hey, um, you know, I I I would uh, I want to I want to pay you tribute. I want to acknowledge you know how how sort of how special you are." And Abram sort of blows him off and doesn't relate to him at all, doesn't want anything to do with with him. And then here's what happens. Suddenly someone shows up from Salem, Salem, which means peace. And uh, this scholars think this is from the area of Jerusalem. And he is the king of Salem, and his name is Melchizedek. And he is also a priest. And in verse 18, he's described as the priest of God most high. Out of the blue, suddenly Abram's is encountering this man from this area called Salem. And uh, he blesses Abraham, and then he blesses God, and he acknowledges, as Melchizedek acknowledges, Abram, you, you were successful in war, not because you're clever, uh, but because God was with you. And then Abram uh, gives to Melchizedek, a tithe. He gives him uh, a, a tenth of his spoils, and he, he, he acknowledges that this is a unique, special person, and he, he, he sort of gives him homage. Right? And that's about the end of Melchizedek. He sort of shows up, interesting, huh? And then you read on. And I think the original purpose, when Moses wrote that passage, I think the original idea is to give the impression of, huh, that's interesting, hmm. Not sure what's going on there. I think that first impression is exactly what readers were supposed to, to have. Who's that? That's weird. That's quirky. Has no background, no genealogy, no father. Huh. And he assumes authority and he assumes the ability to, to bless people. He's a priest and a king. Huh. That's a little unusual. That's kind of what, uh, well, that, that's sort of like what the, 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 those outside of Israel did. They kind of merged those two offices. Uh, but a little different. And, uh, and so kind of quirky. Now, David here, that was 2,000 years B.C., Psalm 110, we're at 1,000 B.C., and David, and this is from D.A. Carson, a present theologian who was reflecting on this, and he believes, and I think he's right, he's saying he thinks that David was just having his devotions one day. And David was reflecting on this and reflecting on this and reflecting on this, this quirky, unusual priest who comes out of nowhere, who has no beginning, seems as though he has no, there's no tracing of where he comes from. And, uh, and what's happening here is that there is a priest who shows up before all the priesthood is, that's established through Moses. A priest in Genesis shows up briefly, has authority to, to bless and speak on behalf of God. And then there's this whole priesthood that happens under Moses, the Levitical priesthood. 
and all the regulations and commandments, 613 commandments, by the way. And this whole thing about sacrifices and all this is up and going. And what David is now communicating is this special Lord of his is also a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, not the order of the Levitical priests. Now, I realize the name Melchizedek is not a word you use around your kitchen table. But I think this will help us understand who Jesus is. Jesus is the one who comes like Melchizedek, and he establishes a whole new way of relating to God. And in Hebrews 7, we have an extended commentary on Melchizedek. And Hebrews 7, the writer of Hebrews, under divine inspiration, tells us about how weak the priesthood under Moses really was. And in verse 19 of chapter 7 in the book of Hebrews, listen to this. The former regulation is set aside. All those rules under Moses is set aside because it was weak and useless. For the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. Here is the good news about Melchizedek. He comes, blesses Abraham, has authority to speak on behalf of God, and in that small slice of Genesis, we begin to see what it will be like for Jesus to be our priest. He will not come and dump on us regulation after regulation. It will be fairly simple. He will be able to bring the worshipers who follow him directly into the presence of God through himself. You are a worshiper, and your high priest is Jesus Christ. The old regulations of the Mosaic Covenant, what they really did was they kept the priests and the worshipers really busy and tired. A whole new system has to be established, a whole new covenant. And verse 23 of Hebrews 7, it tells us this. Now there have been many of, the, of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office, but because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Well, the great weakness of the Mosaic covenant was that it was only sustained by how long the priest lived. And you had to replace that priest, and you had to repla- replace that priest, and that's how weak it was. It was only as good as the priesthood. And so Melchizedek is a type of Christ in that he is one without any genealogy, without any concern for uh, of, his, of his human past in that sense. 
He's unique, a unique individual. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Now, here's one challenge I want to have for you. This is the one we are to go to. We are to go to this priest. He's eternal. He knows us. He can relate to us. And he is unchanging. In many ways, there's a contrast going on here between two ways of relating to God. One is through regulations, adherence to laws, cleaning yourself up, constantly concerned about how you're performing. The other one is strictly and solely through Jesus Christ. One way is really an oppressive tyranny. You're constantly sort of worshiping but also holding a mirror up. How am I doing? How do I look? You're constantly self-aware. And the other one shatters the mirror and says, it doesn't matter. You could never, ever merit. You could never look good enough. This priest is the one who gave himself as a sacrifice for you. One way is through ritual adherence, and the other one is through Christ alone. And as quickly as verse 4 shows up, uh, it fades away, and then we go on to verse 5 and 6, and it's almost like it didn't happen because now we move back to the imagery of the king, king conquering. And so verses 5 and 6 and, uh, and 7 really go back to the idea of a king picking up the war imagery. Look at verses 5 and 6. I want you to hear this. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. Wow. Uh, judgment day. This king will be able to execute judgment upon the earth. Well, we do hope that um, evil will be vanquished. And uh, our, our hope is that evil will be uh, dealt with. And one of the things that, that comes out of this passage is that this king is installed and evil will be dealt with. Because he is king, because he is enthroned and installed and ruling, evil now is, is in its last hour. But for us to understand verses 5 and 6, we have to grasp that Jesus has a phase 1 to his judgment and a phase 2. Or a phase 1 looks like this. Phase 1 is essentially he is going to take upon himself the judgment for sinners. John the Baptist anticipated that wrath and judgment would come from the Messiah. And he didn't fully see or understand that really phase one would include that God would take upon himself the judgment of sinners. So Jesus is our king, but he's also our priest. And he intercedes for sinners and cries out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is Jesus coming after his enemies. It's grace. This is the period of grace. Grace conquering sin. The book of Acts is a, is a history of God's grace offensive. God's grace offensive is Christ betrayed, despised, crucified, rising from the dead. 
and now sitting at the Father's right hand until he makes his enemies as a footstool. Jesus comes after his enemies and converts them. So the same thing is true for us. We are included in his grace offensive. And then phase two, verses five and six. Phase two is coming. Do not doubt it. The day of wrath is coming. Echoed in the book of Revelation, chapter 19, verse 13, he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth comes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. That day is coming. So we're drawn, we're drawn in by this king, we're drawn in by this priest. And all of this is remarkably helpful to help us hear more clearly and see more clearly and understand more clearly Jesus as this distinct person with whom we must deal with. See, we live in a world where words have become meaningless. And I would suggest that even within the church, words like Lord, words like King, words like Priest haven't, have, have, have lost their, their power. Marianne and I and the girls, were, uh, we had a unique opportunity years ago to travel to Croatia. And uh, as we settled into uh, this town called Split, Croatia, really a town called Split, Croatia, um, we were there for a couple of reasons, and some of the great Roman ruins are in the area. And we woke up for the, our first big day there at Split, and I'm down by, uh, we're down by the, the waterway, and there's this kind of this touristy area. And the big, mo- the big agenda for the day was to f- to see Diocletian's palace. Diocletian uh, lived in 300, 300 A.D. Uh, he was a, uh, a terrible uh, Roman leader by way of his persecution of, of Christians. And uh, this was where Diocletian had built his summer palace and ultimately his retirement palace. So that was the order of the day. We wanted to go see Diocletian's palace. And somewhere I got the idea that it was inland about three or four miles. We were trying to figure out, we could take a bus there, take a taxi there. I wasn't quite sure how we were going to do it. So Marianne and the girls and I were down by the waterway, and it's a really beautiful uh, Mediterranean right there. And, uh, and, they're, and they're at the touristy shops kind of looking at some sunglasses or you know some of the things there, and these beautiful archway. It was kind of an old building right there, and uh, stones and these arches and and so um, it was kind of nice, a little gelato, you know, right there. Uh, and I, I'm tired, and but we're, we're going to you know, see Diocletian's Palace. That's the big, big event. I'm kind of getting a little restless, and kind of let's get on with the day. So I'm kind of leaning against these bricks, you know, and, it's like, and I'm and they're over there, and then I look at this group of tourists over here. About thirty of them are gathered around a an acrylic map. You know, it's kind of they're and uh, I look at it, it's about 30, 40 feet from me, and I can see, and I, oh, that's interesting. Oh, it's a picture of Diocletian's palace. That's interesting. 
And I look at it, and then I'm listening to the tour guide, and I go, huh, look at that. There's like seven or eight arches. Huh, it's right by the water. Huh, it's, uh, well, it's seven or eight arches right here. It's interesting. And look at the water right over there. Huh, that's interesting. And then I'm waiting for the girls, waiting for Marianne. And it dawns on me. I'm leaning against Diocletian's palace. <laughs> My hand down. And then uh, I explained to Marianne, I, I think we found it. I think we found it. They serve gelato in Diocletian's palace now. <laughs> My point is that um, I wasn't paying attention. And the, the phrase Diocletian's palace just sort of blended into the blur of, of, a, of a trip, right? And you know what's interesting is that um, these concepts here, you know, the great kings of the world all want to be remembered. They all want to be remembered. They build palaces. They build monuments. And you know what's happened to all their places? Well, tourists now visit their places. They sell gelato, and they're gone. But this one is not gone. This one is present. He is our king. He is our our priest. And his, his kingdom will never end. And uh, may we deeply appreciate uh, these ideas that are true about our king and our priest. And may they not blur into the, the noise of our lives. Let's pray.